I'm delighted to be working again with the Australian fashion label Spell to support the Climate Council. The Climate Council is our go-to non-profit organisation for independent, trustworthy information and solutions on climate change. Give them a follow on Instagram, they're at the Climate Council, and find out more about how donating can support their important work. Here's some more info from scientist and Climate Council founder, Tim Flannery. Hi, I'm Tim Flannery. I'm Chief Counselor at the Australian Climate Council. This podcast is proudly brought to you by the Climate Council, an independent, crowdfunded, not-for-profit providing Australians with independent information on the science, impacts and solutions of the climate crisis we are facing. In 2013, the Federal Climate Commission, Australia's independent source of climate change information, was abolished as the first act of the incoming federal government. But within days, thousands of people chipped into Australia's biggest crowdfunding campaign to launch the new community-powered Climate Council. Since then, we've launched hundreds of peer-reviewed publications on climate impacts and solutions and shaped the national conversation on climate. We're made up of some of Australia's top scientists, researchers and volunteers. We like to call it people-powered climate science. Visit climatecouncil.org.au for independent, authoritative information on climate change or become a supporter today. This partnership is made possible through Australian fashion label Spell. By partnering with four-purpose brands, the Climate Council can reach even more Australians to educate and empower people to lead, act and advocate for action to address the climate crisis. For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. Okay, here is the biographical stuff you need to know on our guest today. She trained at Parsons in New York. She was the first female designer to show on the New York Fashion Week men's schedule. And she was 2019's CFDA Emerging Designer of the Year. In 2020, she also won a Woolmark Prize. She is Emily Adams Bodie, and she loves a flea market. <laughs> That's what this conversation's all about, like collecting stuff. Okay, this is what Emily has to say about her label, Bodie. The brand began with a collection of one-off garments composed entirely of antique textiles and continues to reinvigorate American menswear through the art of storytelling. Bodhi is, so the official line goes, about expressing sentimentality for the past through the study of personal narratives and historical techniques. But what that means in practice is that Emily and her team hunt down these nostalgic textiles. So what, like things like vintage quilts and table linens and funny old varsity patches and souvenir flags and then turn them into new garments that echo the memory of their previous lives. I love this stuff so much and I'm sure many, many listeners are going to really resonate with this. Much of Emily's work with the label is still one-offs and made to order, but she does produce collections using dead stock. Now here are some accolades. Vogue calls her approach lo-fi, but absolutely loves it. L magazine says it's going to change the way you shop. ID magazine calls it the future of fashion, but I liked how the Wall Street Journal describes it best. 
They said, in contrast to our slick, tap-to-buy age, Bodhi's clothing is a startlingly sensory experience, often made from dead stock fabrics and decorated with charmingly anachronistic embroideries or appliques. Items look like they've been rescued from a water-damaged steamer trunk in Great Aunt Margaret's attic. Love it. Since we recorded this, Michelle Obama has joined the roster of celebrities who wear Bodhi. But, well, Emily admits that she, you know, it's a buzz to see the likes of Harry Styles and Jay-Z in her gear. She is pretty much unfazed by all the attention. It's like, listen to it, it's interesting. She gives the impression that it's like, yeah, that's nice. It's a nice addition. But she's just happy to go on doing her own thing. This is a lovely, quirky conversation about what inspires her as a maker and collector, the joys of upcycling and the meaning, the layers of meaning that hand-worked and customised clothes hold. As I said, I'm sure loads of you are going to relate, so you have to get in touch and let us know. Remember, I'm on Instagram at Mrs Press and at The Wardrobe Crisis. And a quick reminder... Please do rate and review the show if you listen in Apple Podcasts. It does help with the algorithm and helps new listeners join our community. Also, oh yeah, if you want more wardrobe crisis, not very good at reminding you this stuff. If you want more wardrobe crisis, which of course you do, you can study with us. Wardrobe Crisis Academy is now live. These are our new online sustainable fashion courses and you can find them at www.thewardrobecrisisacademy.com. Okay, let's hear from Emily Adams Bodie. Emily, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I wish we were doing this in person. Actually, tell us where you are. So I'm actually in my bedroom right now. So when you said you have to find a room that has no noise, and I was like, that does not exist in New York. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I, I originally set up outside in my kitchen. And right now, I'm sure you know, but New York streets are filled not only with people as per usual, but it's everybody dining. So they call out orders over a microphone below my apartment. (laughs) So you'll hear like, Janet, two glasses of wine, you know, whatever it is. Very strange times. Yes. We're going to get onto that. But I want to begin with the most important stuff, which is basically your work. But I have, as I warned you before, upcycled my questions out of your Instagram content, which I thought was nifty. That's a great idea. So... (laughs) I love the stories behind your materials, and I'm hoping you might talk us through some of them. Are you ready? I'll try. Yeah. (laughs) Let's go. Okay. Number one, and I'm reading out the caption, hand crocheted shirt inspired by a 1950s summer luncheon tablecloth sourced in New England. What is it about tablecloths and where do you find your things? So I've always been quite inspired by domestic textiles and you know, 40% of our brand is still made from antique textiles. And I'd say probably 90% of those are domestic. And I've always been, you know, attached to all the craft or intrigued by all the craft that makes up our homes and our home environments and more specifically our bedding and all the little embroideries and comforts of quilts and female traditions that make up our home. So tablecloths are have always been something that I've bought and collected, even not putting them on tables, you know, uh, but just having them as maybe little dresser cloths or in on my desk in my old apartment. And, and so they continue to inspire me for menswear because they're a perfect shape. You know, they're often 
36 by 36, or sometimes they'll be 45 by 76 if you have like a banquet tablecloth. And so they're really quite easy, not only to make shirts out of, but to take Mm. inspiration from. And so that one in particular, you know, we source quite a bit in New England and there's some really wonderful summer tablecloths (laughs) in New England specifically. And I, I think I use that language around the captions are describing those tablecloths because I have a familial connection to New England. And so if I'm sourcing it there, I can reminisce about where my grandmother would have put that tablecloth and it would have been in the summertime on her breakfast table. I love the kind of combination of nostalgia with craft, but then a kind of quite a fierce modernity, I would say, in terms of what you actually produce. I love it. I love that so much. And I'm also a collector, so I, I love the stories. Oh, thank you. Number two was similar probably, but um, rainbow chenille shirt inspired by 1960s American poolside upholstery. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the poolside upholstery. So we're actually doing some projects. Uh, we've done projects with a hotel in the Cayman Islands called Palm Heights, Grand Cayman. And a lot of the inspiration are these mid-century poolside domestic fabrics. And, you know, to look at something as inspiration like that and translate it into like a wearable garment for men, it's really fun and I enjoy doing it. And that shirt honestly sold the best this summer out of any other garment that we had. (laughs) So it's funny you picked that one. Okay, if that is a popular item, I'm sure that number three wipes the floor with it. And it is, you can see you smiling, custom shirt for Harry Styles from oh, yeah. 1970s Laced. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Well, so that one we couldn't sell more of because there was just one. <laughs> and we found that textile again, actually, in a lime green. So we'll probably make, if not him, another one. We'll make someone another one. But yeah, he has been such a huge supporter of the brand and he's so lovely and I'm excited. We have a couple of beautiful features coming out, you know, more times where he's wearing our clothes that I can't wait to see the pictures of him in, but he's a great supporter and he wears the clothes so well. And he, you know, quite frankly, was just shopping with us at the beginning. You know, we, it wasn't necessarily like pulling for press shoots or events or anything like that right so that's what's so interesting is when you have celebrities or clientele like this that they're shopping and you don't know where it's going to end up like you just assume this especially a piece like that like oh that piece is just for his you know summer vacation or whatever and then it ends up like in his music video (laughs) and it's it's just a really great surprise did they tell you I don't think so. I, I'm also not the best at, <laughs> at VR. I feel like we often know when we're in press when my mom's friend texts my mom. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we're not the most on top of that. We could be better. But no, his his stylist is totally unbelievable. Harry Lambert also, and has been shopping for him and you know getting a lot of custom garments for him for quite a while. I mean, sorry to go on about celebrity, which we never do on this podcast, but I do think it's interesting because it's obviously a kind of flashpoint of reach, isn't it? Suddenly Mm -hmm. your name is on the lips of perhaps those who hadn't come across the brand before. It's just, it's a phenomenon, right? Yeah. I mean, I I think what 
celebrity does for us is so different than what it does for, you know, maybe like a women's bag line. Or I have friends who, you know, they get placed on a celebrity or celebrity buys it off matches or whatever. And then it ends up, you know, in a picture of them on vacation. And then that bag sells out like across the board for Mm. in every stockist. For us, it's, I think men are a little bit different. I think it's just like a cool factor too. (laughs) And it's just, it's nice. Like oftentimes the item itself is already sold probably because they bought it. Yeah, I was going to say. So you've only got one tablecloth. Yeah, it's not really converting to sales like that. No, but I I think it does. You know, uh, what you were saying, it's the awareness too. You know, when Jay-Z bought a bunch of stuff and he looks absolutely incredible in Bodie and he was wearing like full looks in the Hamptons, you know, carrying his kids. And it was like the best picture you could ever imagine, right? Of a paparazzi style of him, just like, I don't know where he was, like in a park or something. And he's in a full Bodie look. And it, it's just magical when a moment like that happens. All right. Well, I actually, because I'm kind of anti celebrity, even though I think Harry Styles is great, I prefer number four, which is how to make a sweetheart t shirt. And the caption is, experienced sewing not required, can be made using a needle and thread or a home machine. And then if you're not keen on craft making, you can commission a custom one by email. Let's talk about the power of DIY and how everyone can do it. Yeah. So this was an interesting piece. The New York Times reached out to us to do these kind of like DIY I think it was a five-step process or maybe 10-step max. Uh, And they were trying to figure out like what what could someone make at home that is reminiscent of a Bodhi garment. And I I really didn't want to just do how to mend your clothing. Okay. Because I, I don't think I'm the best at teaching someone how to mend their clothing. You know, I have people that work in the studio that are magicians at mending and darning and can make something look like it was never even torn in the first place. So I'm, I'm definitely not the best at mending or darning, but I wanted to do something for the New York Times for this DIY piece because people have already done replications of Bodhi and reproductions of Bodhi. We had someone tagging us in a couple of pictures where they were making like infant sized senior cord pants and infant sized Bodhi, you know, even though we sell baby Bodhi, it was like a little different and it was awesome to see that. And we have a lot of college students send me, you know, their work of Bodhi reproductions. We had a high school student's mother send me a jacket that she had reproduced of ours. And it's awesome to see that, you know, because that's how you learn. And so for this DIY project for the New York Times, we um, we thought, well, here's something that it's not going to take away from us to show people how to do this because someone did it in the first place and they used a home machine. And we, you know, I wanted to show people that this is what you could do with a t-shirt that maybe it's faded or you don't like it or you don't know what to do with it. And, and this is a way to kind of make it into a personal heirloom product or a gift for someone else. And it doesn't take too much time. I love that you're encouraging or delighted by even people being inspired by what you do. That feels like how we should be looking at the world now. And yet it's not how traditionally fashion has looked at itself. So you don't feel kind of like, get off, this is my idea. No, it's hard. You have to step back and I think when I get put in that position, I often step back and think, what would I say to my friend 
if she was experiencing the same thing, or, you know, maybe one of my guy friends, if someone was just copying him all the time, Mm. you just have to keep going. (laughs) You know, you can't get super hung up about it. Of course, it saddens you sometimes, depending. And, you know, I sometimes I don't know what's worse, like if a big corporation does it, or if a smaller designer does it, it really doesn't bother me at all. Of course, if an individual does it just for themselves, it's quite flattering. And I, I love that. But you know, you just have to keep going because at the end of the day, everyone copies everyone. And, you know, if they're copying you, it just means that you're better. I guess. Yeah, I I think so. <laughs> but actually, I should pick myself up on that because I said I love the idea that you're pleased when you see people perhaps feel inspired by what you do. And I meant individuals, but there is another side to that. We see increasingly bigger brands with power imbalances ripping off smaller or emerging designers and that's obviously a completely different story and really Mm -hmm. upsetting and I feel like it's I feel like it's happening more I keep getting a lot of messages about it on Instagram there was a a woman the other day who is a pattern designer in London an independent who creates patterns for sale and a brand had ripped off one of her jumpsuits and she was just gutted because that's her livelihood and then this bigger brand is like I'll just take it off Instagram and knock it off I mean that's a thing a different thing yeah it's a bummer I mean you get shamed for it on Instagram or whatever, but you just have to be unfazed by it, you know, and and you have to look at these bigger designers who are still unapologetically themselves and you equate, you know, specific ideas with them. Mm. Would they be upset? Probably doesn't doesn't even phase them. So, (laughs) you know, reach for a higher ground. (laughs) Well, I think the Sweetheart t-shirt is a beautiful example of getting everybody to get involved with DIY. You just mentioned senior cords. That was another one of my points. I'm going to read it out to you. It's from November, 2018, this caption, and I loved it for so many reasons. It is National Corduroy Day tomorrow. I mean, the fact of that being a thing, I love. <laughs> Come celebrate with us. We're launching a special collection of senior cords that are customizable on site. And then it's like, you know, here's how you are SVP. And then you say, must wear cords. <laughs> so there's a dress code. There's a National Corduroy Day. And I mean, maybe I just want you to tell us what the story of senior cords is. Yes, of course. So National Corduroy Day is eleven eleven. <laughs> you know, that's like the whales of the corduroy. But senior cords were one of my, gosh, I started collecting senior cords when I first came to college, but I, I had known about them before, I believe, but I couldn't afford them. They kind of, they go for quite a bit of money. And I think that price is only rising, but senior cords are the tradition that began in America in the early 1900s and lasted through the 1970s. And there's a couple of places where perhaps they still do it, but it pretty much ended in the 1970s. And a lot of the universities, this was in and around Indiana is where this began. So it originally began at Purdue University. And the story goes, a group of seniors were walking by a shop in Indiana and they were making trousers or somehow stumbled upon a cheap bolt of corn colored corduroy in the window made trousers from that because it was cheap. (laughs) Right. And then they drew all over them. And then it became a tradition that seniors would 
hand draw and hand paint on their senior cords. And the motifs are not only class schedules, but inside jokes, who they're dating, maybe their mascot, and also sometimes high school or, you know, future goals or whatever that it might be. So today we reinvigorated that tradition through making senior cords and we do trousers, shorts, jackets, and now a pullover. I hope to celebrate National Corduroy Day again. (laughs) But, But yeah, we, I mean, we have individual interviews. I used to do all the interviews myself. I don't quite do them anymore unless it's a close friend of mine or a family member, family member. But we do interviews and sometimes these interviews would last for like two hours on the phone. And it's people talking about their lives. And sometimes they have fascinating stories, you know, about what their parents did or what their grandparents did and how they got here. So we'll do passport photos and stamps and maybe, you know, their favorite cartoon character or the car that they drove in high school or whatever whatever it may be, poems, lyrics, anything at all. And our illustrators are so good and so talented. You know, they can do family portraits, but then they can also do, you know, the best drawing of Scooby-Doo you've ever seen, apart from the original Scooby-Doo drawing. <laughs> so they're, they're very talented. And especially with text to write Manhattan or Beirut or whatever it might be. <laughs> so good. What do you think the kind of hyper-personalization that you're talking about here does for clothes and does for, I guess, their longevity, but what else? I said before we press record that your name has been on my wall of post-it notes of people I'm desperate to talk to for this podcast. I can't think of anyone who embeds storytelling so deeply in what they produce in such a cool way. It's amazing. What do you, what do you think it does for the wearer? Oh, thank you. That's, that's very flattering. For me, I mean, as someone who shops vintage and antique, I couldn't find something that would replicate those feelings and that sentiment in contemporary clothing. So that was part of it. You know, I want a pair of senior cords. I still don't have one. (laughs) I mean, I have vintages, but I don't have my own. But that was the idea. Like, I want to make my cousin a senior cord jacket, you know, when her mother passed away, because I want that feeling of that time to be forever preserved on a jacket. And, you know, we did portraits of her mother and designs of my aunt's jewelry. And that's the idea, right? Is that you can take a very particular moment in your time, whether you're 18 years old or whether you're 55 years old, somewhere in between or older or younger, and have this item that defines you or helps define that moment at least. And I've had a couple of people email me since having, you know, press around senior cords, sending me pictures of their cords and pictures of their friends' cords or them wearing them in the 1950s. And what's so amazing is that a lot of these people remember doing this, but they don't really remember why, (laughs) you know? And that's the best part about is that they kept it, most of them, who messaged me kept it or they know how long they kept it for. And, and I love that, that they have the memory of the feeling around it and how Mm. exciting that was, but they're not really sure like when they did it or why they did it or how it even started. Cause that's what I was interested in is like, was this just something that someone like planned every year or, you know, how did every senior year, graduating class come to do this? Or why did only specific friend groups come to do this? But 
it, it's really fun. And like you said, it becomes legacy items, right? It becomes heirlooms that you're not going to throw away or destroy a pair of cords that have all your family birthdays on it. And, you know, your dog from when you were five years old on it. And, and so that's really cool. And people get excited to pass it down. You know, we just did a jacket for a friend of ours in Canada and he's already talking about how he's going to give it to his son. And his son is like 18 months old. So, you so know, good. people get excited about it. And, and that's how you should shop for clothes, right? Because that's how we shop for objects. And that's how we build our homes. Or that's how I hope people build their homes is, well, I'll buy this thing because I'm going to have it forever. And one day it'll be my children's or one day, you know, I'll pass it on to my sister. It's beautiful. It made me just think of Kate Fletcher, who's been on this podcast. Have you heard of her? She's a British academic and she talks about, or the body of her work is based on this concept of craft of use. She's attached to the London College of Fashion, but she basically is not interested in or not looking at the design and selling and marketing of clothes, but is focused purely on how they live in our lives after they've been acquired. Oh, interesting. And she does all these interviews with people. It's really cool. It's like she'll talk to, she sat in a, <laughs> we'll share a link to it, but she placed herself in prominent parts of her town where she lives and then took these interviews with anyone who'd share them about how they lived with their clothes. And they'd tell her life stories kind of woven through whatever garment it was that they were talking about. It's the same. Wow. I love that. The last one, and I'm not sure the date of this post, but it's about one of your favorite pieces that you'd made. And you say it's from an early 1900s tobacco silk quilt that you found in Atlanta. What even is tobacco silk? <laughs> so this is a garment that I should not have sold. <laughs> yeah, I think about that sometimes, like some of these pieces, I'm like, oh man, I should have kept this one. I don't know where it is, but maybe one day it'll resurface again. We actually sold this one to a wholesale account. So I'm totally not sure where it ended up. But the tobacco silk quilts are really delicate. So you don't find them always in the best condition. And I'll get I'll come back to that because we reproduced them quite a bit. But the tobacco silks were tiny little bits of ephemera, little prints of, you know, it might have been uh, collegiate you know, say Yale on it with a little football player, or it might be the British flag. You know, they did tons of flag ones. And it might be famous, like notable figures, historical notable figures and royalty or politicians or animals. And you can find all sorts of different little tobacco silks and this one was of flags, I believe. I think there were a couple other ones mixed in. And this quilt was found in Atlanta at one of my most favorite markets that I go to and have gone to since I was a little kid. Probably how I ended up loving antiques in the first place. And it happened, you know, on the first Tuesday of every month or something like that. And they still happen. And I found this quilt there and we made a jacket out of this quilt. <laughs> so that's the story. Were the silks, were they given away as free gifts or something with tobacco? Yeah. So that it was similar to a Cracker Jack charms, right? So it was made to make you buy more because you were collecting these items. And it was a lot of housewives were collecting them and ladies of the home and they were collecting them. And oftentimes they were made into 
like pillow shams. They were less often made into full quilts because it's so time consuming. And they're entirely hand-stitched. But they were made into pillow shams quite a bit. You can find little squares, you know, at antique stores or flea markets or what have you. But yeah, we have... um, we have a whole look that is a reproduction of a unfinished tobacco silk quilt top. And we reproduce this in India and in India, they're able to replicate these historical textiles because they also do so much work by hand. And even if we, we had a call today with one of our Indian factories and because we were trying to negotiate on pricing on a project for next season. And we asked if they could try to do it in machine embroidery, you know, one of these hand embroideries and replicate it by machine. And they were like, we just could never do that because it has to be by hand because it has to look like, you know, the historical. And I, and I totally agree with them. And you don't have that anywhere else in the world where you have people so dedicated to the hand feel and the craft of hand embroideries. We've just gone through some of your pieces, but how would you describe the Birdie label and the universe, I guess, you've created and the perspective? How would I describe it? Um, I describe our clothing as sentimental, as familial, poetic, and comfortable. Our universe is so much based in and around the home. So it has a lot to do with the way you live your private life based on, you know, the cultures that shaped you as a person and the family traditions that shaped you as a person. And our clothing allows people, or I hope encourages people to feel grounded in reflecting on their past, but also feel excited to explore those family histories and the objects that they grew up with. You make menswear, but it's obviously worn by anyone who feels attracted to it. Talk about gender. Irrelevant? (laughs) No, I mean, so I've always been interested in menswear and I I love designing for this other person. I love making things and selling things to someone that is outside of me. Although I do wear Bodhi and I probably wear Bodhi at least something every day. And over half of our customers are women. And, and that's pretty standard for a menswear company, right? You look at a company like Brooks Brothers, over half of their transactions are also made by women. But most of those women are shopping for their, their boyfriends, husbands, brothers, whatever. But with us, you know, a lot of times they're buying it for themselves. And we have quite a few stockists that pick it up as women's wear or exclusively, you know, selling menswear to women like matches and Bergdorf women's and you know, it, it's definitely a big part of our business and it's something that, you know, we're looking towards for the future. I feel like, Emily, I don't know if you've thought on this, but that a bunch of really interesting sustainability focused designers are women designing menswear. I'm thinking about Bethany Williams. Oh, yes. She's very sweet. Fantastic, right? Or another one in London, Priya Alawalia. I have not met her. There's probably some more. But I wonder if there's, there's something interesting in that to me, that there's such a sustainability focus. They're all upcyclers, actually. Well, all. Three's a trend. Come on, I worked in magazines for years. If you've got three, it's a trend. Yeah, <laughs> right. Is there something about menswear courses that's lending itself to being experimental in sustainability, or am I just making barking up the wrong tree? Where do you study? Oh, gosh. I went to Parsons. I don't know about that. I don't think there were other people in my class that 
Yes, there was no one else in my class making things from other things. <laughs> I don't think so. But I, I think it has to do with the way that you think. Perhaps that's it. And, and you know, if you already are working so much outside of yourself and making clothes for yourself, maybe you think a little bit differently. Mm. Those designers I just mentioned have been in the news. Bethany Williams keeps winning things. You keep winning things. You are the winner of 2020's International Woolmark Prize, the Karl Lagerfeld Award for Innovation. That's a big mouthful. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> what does it mean to you? Oh, gosh. Well, this is a, a really amazing award to win because of the history of Woolmark in that they're working towards a more sustainable world, not only through the process of making and using traceable merino wool, but also for creating garments that have longevity. So they do all of these tests to make sure things don't stretch or break or bleed. We met people through the process that we still are going to work with for future seasons, like the season that we're working on right now. And you don't have that happen with any other competition. You know, I've, I've done Vogue Fashion Fund. I did the LVMH Prize. And and for those, you know, that's so much based on meeting people in the press and meeting people in the industry that can help you network, you know, not necessarily with the supply chain, whereas Woolmart has so much to do with the supply chain. One of the points is, have you worked with wool before? I was like, well, of course we worked with wool. We offer wool maybe shirting or we do a lot of these blankets made from 1950s camp blankets or wool blankets and a lot of them why I was originally intrigued you know they have the wool mark certified logo on it so I was like oh we'll just do oh, the old ones oh the old ones do and still now we're doing like maybe a hundred of them in our studio right now like all different colors and they all have the little wool mark logo and I was like well we'll just do this for the prize you know we'll really lean into you know these blankets and they're like no we're trying to get you to do like traceable wool along your supply chain and what's interesting is like I thought we used wool a lot before now we like really use wool. <laughs> you know, our best selling pieces from last season were all of our sweaters. We do all of those in Peru. And we had been knitting in Peru, you know, for a couple of styles, not even knowing that we were using traceable Walmart certified wool uh, because we were using a company, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but Zania Barufa, you know, another great mill and yarn supplier. And then, and then we were able to work with mills in India that are have relationships with our factories in India that could also provide certified merino wool for weaving our products. You know, there's just a lot of relationships that were just like just almost missed or we didn't know that we could work with them because we didn't know that we'd ever be able to hit their minimums. And, and so it was, it was pretty cool to be able to utilize, you know, the network that Walmart has and all of their suppliers. You also did use some dead stock, right? Some factory surplus that you'd found somewhere. What was that? Mm -hmm. We still do that quite a bit. So we work with a lot of what they're called jobbers in the garment district. They buy dead stock or surplus from brands that couldn't produce or you know maybe had to hit minimums for a factory. And so they didn't use all of their wool products. And some of the dead stock fabrics we buy are from 
you know, like the 1940s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, you know, we were able to get into a warehouse in upstate New York and buy like a ton of coating and suiting weights from the 1940s through the 1960s. But then we're also buying fabrics off of, you know, to be totally transparent, some of our friends' brands. So we can really work. We have the malleability as a business to be able to work with both types of dead stock fabrics. You told the judges that you want to help bring back American manufacturing and you talked about creating a supply chain focused on those operating historic and family-owned businesses. Talk us through that vision and, and just tell us a bit more about how you actually make. So part of that, you know, I just like like hearing stories and helping preserve these stories. And we work with a trouser factory in Brooklyn that has been around since the 1920s. And in the last couple of years, the owner, the original owner passed away and sold it to another family, this guy, Justin, who has been transforming it into a more contemporary business. You know, they offer trousers for sale online and have a website and an Instagram. And, but it's still the same factory. Some of the workers, their families have been there for generations and they've worked there since they were 20. And, you know, now they're 65. And the goal is to be able to really allow these factories to still produce and really reinvigorate American menswear and American manufacturing. I bet you go into those offices and go, I'm rummaging in your cupboards. Could you go and make me a cup of coffee so I can look behind the wardrobe and see what's in there? Yes. I mean, that happens so often. We (laughs) just bought, I just bought like 500,000 buttons or something from a button factory that closed that had been around for a hundred years. And she's like, well, I can also FaceTime with you. And I was like, yes. (laughs) We just like (laughs) sat through and watched her go through, you know, all of these buttons and, I don't know. I mean, if we are able to move some of our production to some of these factories and utilize some of these mills and domestic, you know, family owned and operated mills, we should. Oftentimes there's not really a price difference. But also it just made me think selling the buttons. I used to have a shop and I used to buy a lot of, I was you buying buttons, not that many, but you know, I I would feel heartbroken by the idea of this stuff being lost or wasted. It was actually less political around fashion waste when I back when I was doing that sort of thing. Now I feel very political about it, like it's about tackling our environmental crisis. But I do feel that kind of, it is heritage, it is around loss and preservation. We're in danger of losing so many of these skills and stories and capabilities, right? Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of this comes from, right, is uh, our fear around it. You know, the fear that if you don't preserve it, then no one's going to preserve it. You know, and it's a lot to take on and maybe... I'd be uh, a little bit less stressed out, you know, if I didn't care at all. But I've always been this way, even since I was a little kid. And my mom's always been this way. My grandmother's always been this way. It's definitely genetic. (laughs) The rescuing and the collecting. Let's talk about that. You grew up in Atlanta. Is that right? Yes. So I grew up, I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, but both of my parents are actually from Massachusetts. So I spent quite a lot of time in and around New England, even though I'm Southern by birth. <laughs> and and I, I definitely identify as Southern, but New England was, you know, where my family was from. So I spent so much time there and that area definitely shaped who I am. You mentioned 
the monthly flea markets. I know you used to love to wear vintage clothes when you were younger, as now. I read somewhere that your grandfather always wore a bow tie. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That is right. <laughs> That's crazy you read that. I love that. So my grandfather really exclusively wore bow ties. I've never really seen a picture of him in a tie, except for, I think there was like a school photo I found once of him in a tie, and I, I bet it was a uniform. But we have funny little idiosyncrasies in our family like that. And I like those stories. And I, I hope to one day have a book of all of my grandfather's bow ties. Oh, do it. I, <laughs> I, I started framing some of them. I framed some for my sister and, and traced his signature, you know, for the bow ties and everything. But yeah, I, I, I think a lot of our family had funny, funny little things like that, as does every family. Collectors, though. Mm-hmm. Yes. You were collectors. <laughs> yeah, collectors. <laughs> you studied philosophy. Why? Gosh, why did I study? Well, so when I was in high school, I, I wanted to go to a university that offered a dual degree. So there were only a couple. And Parsons really was the best school for fashion that offered a dual degree. Other schools maybe had a better liberal arts program. But at the end of the day, the new school, which is the umbrella school for Parsons and Eugene Lang, has quite an incredible history around philosophy professors. And it used to be called the New School in Exile. And a lot of professors like Hannah Arendt, you know, fled the Holocaust and ended up teaching at the New School. So I went to Eugene Lang for philosophy and I did my philosophy degree simultaneously with my fashion, my menswear degree. And the reason for that, you know, I I wanted a liberal arts degree. I felt I have this love of learning that's embedded in me from where I went to school in Atlanta. And it was a school founded on pragmatic principles and learning as experience. And I loved learning and I, I wanted to keep learning. And I think philosophy helped shape the way that I think about things and the way that I build my concepts and the way I ask questions, the way I write, the way I edit, you know, everything. (laughs) If you were going to write on your senior chords that you have yet to make for yourself, an answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? Dot, dot, dot. I'd have to say family. Yeah. (laughs) Let's finish on talking about these weird times and perhaps the role community can have. I love how you talk about your story in terms of community. Not everyone is up for having a shop, are they, in these times? No one really knows where fashion's going to be headed, whether it's all going to move online, whether we're ever going to have Fashion Week again in its previous form. I don't know. What's your take on where fashion's headed? I know that's a big question, but thinking about these times of great change, what's your feeling about what's going to matter to fashion moving forward? So I I think about it, to talk about community, I think about it in how the neighborhood in which you live and the people that you surround yourself with shapes who you are as a person. And and I was talking to Guy Trebay about this from the, the New York Times when I first opened Bodhi and how one of my most favorite things to do in cities when I would visit is I'd get, gosh, what magazine was that? I think it was like Lucky Magazine always published like city guides in the back. And I would tear them out and print them off online, you know, 
and go to a city with my parents and I'd be in Amsterdam and I'd have these little tear outs from the Lucky Magazine. And I just walk around the city and go to all these shops. And that's what I loved because that's how I experienced the city. You know, even if I didn't buy anything, but the city and the neighborhoods and the people that made up those neighborhoods shaped who lived there and they shaped your experience going there as a tourist and the way that you understand the city. And that's what I love about having neighborhood shops and having brick and mortar and retail spaces is that Mm. you invest in the city again and you invest in people having neighborhood community. You know, you can help define a community around you. And we saw this quite recently on, um, you know, all these apartment postings being like, next door to the Bodhi shop. And you're like, wow, we like help define this neighborhood now, right? It's character, isn't it? It's part yeah, of building character. Totally. And, and you know, it's exciting. And some of the restaurants, you know, everyone becomes friends and they become, you know, part of a similar philosophy towards life. Or, their, you know, their goal is a, a very similar goal. And they want to mm. have businesses and they want to scale their businesses and they want to you know, create this neighborhood and help this neighborhood flourish. It's back to where we began, Emily. It's story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. This has been a lovely storytelling session. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. I had fun. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you.